I watched. I'm appalled. The four young men on the stage call themselves the Beatles. They look like eels after an explosion in a wig factory. From their three electronically amplified guitars and a set of drums comes music with little or no melody. It's a rhythmic, monotonous beat with shouts of oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They wiggle like eels and twist and shout. They dance and grimace and make the gestures of fools. Erskine Johnson, Hollywood correspondent, January 1st, 1964. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. Well, hello there. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. My name is Jeff Kelly, and in this episode, the 39th, I'm going to talk about one of my favorite films. This time, the 1964 classic, A Hard Day's Night, featuring the Beatles. Now, one thing I find amazing about the Beatles was just how, especially early on, everything seemed to work out for the band. I mean, the time was right for a group like the Beatles, with, you know, the death of Buddy Holly and Elvis going to the army and such. And it might have been another group that hit it big. A group that probably would have come and gone. But the Beatles were the perfect band, four men with four distinct personalities, all with a tremendous sense of humor. And their songwriting ability flourished to an unbelievable degree. And they felt just so comfortable in front of the press, always being witty and charming. Just look at their press conference when they first arrived at Kennedy Airport in New York before the Ed Sullivan Show. No, we need money first. (laughs) I mean, to think, a little over a year earlier, they were just four poor kids from Liverpool. And the film A Hard Day's Night continued their good fortune. I mean, it could have ended up being just another in a long line of forgettable rock and roll films, like Rock Around the Clock and Rock, 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 both from 1956, or... Carnival Rock from 57 or Go Johnny Go from 59. But their film looked more like an indie art piece with bits of the Marx Brothers thrown in that was filmed in an almost documentary style. Film critic Roger Ebert described the film as one of the great life-affirming landmarks of the movies, and he added it to his list of great movies. I think one should remember that the time the Beatles and Richard Lester began filming this now classic rock and roll film, the Fab Four weren't the band we know today. They started filming on March 2, 1964, only a year after their first UK album, Please Please Me, was released. And in the US, I Want to Hold Your Hand, their first successful single in the States, only hit number one two months earlier. To many, the mop tops were just a fad that were sure to be short-lived. How could anyone predict that the fame of the band, who sang She Loves You, Yeah, 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 would last 60 years? 
The film A Hard Day's Night was nothing more than a quick money grab by United Artists meant to capitalize on Beatlemania before it faded away like many thought it would. Filming started a month after the band appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show. The critic Paul Jones wrote of their television appearance, Why Sullivan found it necessary to aid in the phony promotion of four rock and roll exponents, all of them resembling Moe of the Three Stooges, is beyond comprehension. And he went on. Shorn of their mop-top hairdos, they would look and sound like many other inferior rock and roll groups, which are still attempting to keep the fad which died when Elvis Presley entered the armed forces. There was nothing attractive about the look or sound of the Beatles. There is no reason why Sullivan should take part in this absurd campaign to make the group appear important. I will point out that Paul Jones was a 67-year-old man when he wrote that piece, and just maybe he should have thought about retiring. I mean, I really don't know anything about him, but I have this vision of his grandkids watching Paul, George, John, and Ringo on the Ed Sullivan Show with their heads bopping back and forth, big grins on their faces, singing along with every word, and old Paul back in his rocking chair, a snarl on his face, bitter and angry, muttering, these kids today have no idea what entertainment is. Now, Jolson, he was blah, blah, blah. But his opinion was probably the same as, well, a lot of the older generation at the time. All hoping, wishing that the Beatles would just, well, fade away. So when Richard Lester was approached by United Artists to direct the film, he was told he could do whatever he wanted to do as long as it cost about 200,000 pounds, which is about a half million dollars in U.S. money, a very low budget for a film even at that time, and it was in theaters by July of 1964, because they wanted to capitalize on the band before they faded away. They started filming in March, and it had to be in theaters by July. That's only about seven weeks to shoot and about three weeks to edit. A very tight timeline. Oh, and the band had to write at least six new songs for the film. And just a year earlier, the band producer George Martin had doubts about their songwriting abilities. But now, of course... They were able to write and record songs like A Hard Day's Night, Can't Buy Me Love, and I Love Her, I Should Have Known Better, If I Fell, and I'm Happy Just to Dance With You in a very short time. The Beatles themselves were originally against making films, as the history of rock bands in films weren't all that great. I mean, most rock bands just popped in to do a song during a film, and many times not even one of their hits, but some lame tune written for the film, and then the main plot would continue centered around the actors with the band nowhere to be seen. The Beatles' manager, Brian Epstein, actually signed the band to a three-picture deal. And from what I've read, like usual, it wasn't a very good deal for the band. American Richard Lester was hired because he worked with Peter Sellers and the Goons, including making the short The Running, Jumping, and Standing film. The studio knew he would appeal to the band as they were all a fan of Lester's work. When Dave Pick, the vice president of promotion and marketing, approached Lester about the film, Lester asks, what do you think it should be? And Pick responded, I don't care. One had to imagine it was a dream situation for Lester. He hired Welsh screenwriter Ellen Owen to write the screenplay with the idea to make it as natural as an experience for the group as possible. Lester Owen and producer Walter Jensen began hanging around the band to try to capture as much as they could about their personalities and humor 
to include in the script. As Lester later said, the film basically wrote itself. The hardest part of making the film, according to Dick Lester, was trying to keep the shooting locations secret from the screaming fans. In the making of documentary, he tells the story of, after the first day of filming that was done on the train, a young man about 24 years old who was working on the film at the time and had a hairdo not too much different from the band stepped out of the train with 9 or 10 tin cans of film in his hands. Immediately, screaming girls began chasing him and he panicked and ran. He ended up dropping the cans and they lost about half of the first day's work on the train tracks. There's an interesting story about the title song of the film. Now, as they began to wrap up filming, it was still untitled. Producer Walter Sensen was under pressure to get a name for the film so they could begin to advertise it. He began to bug the director and the band about a title, and no one had any ideas. One day he was chatting with John Lennon. Lennon mentioned how Ringo had the habit of misusing words. Sensen asked for an example and Lennon said that after a late night in the studio, the next day, Ringo would say something like, well, that was a hard day's night. Shenson said, John, that would be a great title for the movie. Lennon thought so as well. And everybody else agreed, though Shenson later admitted that perhaps they just said they agreed to get it done. Anyway, eventually, Shenson realized that they would need a title song, so he went to John and told him so. At first, John resisted, but Sensen told him, how can you have a film called A Hard Day's Night without a song called A Hard Day's Night? The very next morning, Paul and John called him into the dressing room and played him the title song. He later said, think about this. I got a hit song on demand. That's almost impossible. The film was shot almost entirely in sequence, beginning with them on the train. Because of the tight timeline, they didn't worry about things like close-ups, medium shots, and all that. They just filmed whatever was happening. George was captured a few times with some unexpected results, like at the beginning, while the Beatles are running, he falls on his face. Later, at one point, we see him knock over his amp, and then while climbing into the helicopter at the end, you can see his shoe fall off, and all of it was left in the movie. Once the filming was done, they showed it to the suits in New York. One of them said, the film is fine, but we're going to have to overdub their voices because no one will understand them. All the rest of the suits agreed, but Richard Lester, who had Final Cut, refused to make any changes. So what is this film about? Well, it's really a fictional day in the life of the band. Though I read somewhere that in reality the day would have taken 36 hours, but I don't know that for sure. The thing is, there was an intentional, surreal quality to the film. Like, they're playing cards in the train and suddenly they have instruments and are singing I Should Have Known Better. So we follow the guys as they're being chased, while Norman Rosington as Norm, the Beatles' fictional manager, and John Junkin as Shake, the Beatles' fictional road manager, try to keep track of them and attempt to keep them out of trouble. On top of that, we have to deal with Wilford Bremble as Paul's troublemaking grandfather, John. He's very clean, you know. A bit old for that sort of chat, aren't you? Well, at least I've got a backlog of memories. All you've got is that book. Oh, stop picking on me as bad as the rest of them. Ah, so you are a man after all. What's that mean? 
Now the band has to do a show at the end of the film, but Granddad gets to Ringo, who decides to go off on his own to go parading. I'm going parading before it's too late. Can they get Ringo back in time for the show? And now I'm going to take a little break while Russell tells you a little bit about the actor who plays Paul's grandfather, Wilford Brombell. Take it away, Russell. Hello, celluloiders. Russell again to give you a few words on the uh, supporting cast for Hard Day's Night. For the supporting cast of Hard Day's Night, Dick Lester wisely went with a cast of experienced well-known character actors, most with extensive experience in comedy. These seasoned performers provided a strong backbone for the film to support the inexperienced Beatles and had the added effect of familiarity to the wider audience beyond the teen girls there to scream at the Fab Four. These performers included Norman Rossington as the pushy manager, John Junkin as his hapless assistant, Richard Vernon as the snooty train passenger, Derek Guiler as the police sergeant, plus Anna Quayle, John Bluthal, Lionel Blair, Derek Nimmo, and even Charlotte Rampling and Phil Collins. However, the main supporting role of Paul McCartney's troublemaking grandfather was played by Wilfred Bramble, who at that time was as famous in the UK as the Beatles themselves, and even today would be recognised by a majority of Britons on the strength of his co-star of the classic comedy series Steptoe and Son. Bramble was born in 1912 in Dublin and began as a child performer, entertaining wounded troops during the Great War, and afterwards became a theatrical actor in the 20s and 30s. During World War II, he served in the military entertainment organisation ENSA, and post-war he returned to theatre and began appearing on television and may be seen in the BBC's cult SF classics 1984 and Quatermass 2, Playing Old Men. This led to Steptoe and Son, about a father and son who run a rag and bone second-hand junk business in East End of London. This was created by comedy writers Alan Simpson and Ray Galton, following on from their long-running very popular Hancock's Half Hour radio and TV series. In that, Hancock had been paired with Sid James, and much of the comedy arose from the aspirational Hancock being tricked or brought down to earth by the trickster James, and Galton and Simpson wanted to develop the comedy of two incompatible characters without having to cope with comedians' egos. To this end, they cast character actors Bramble and Harry H. Corbett, who was actually only 13 years younger than his TV father, but Bramble was one of that group of actors that gets to play much older characters. Bramble's Albert Steptoe was conniving, greedy, selfish, but ultimately fearful and dependent old man, while his son Harold was a romantic whose dreams were either brought down by his own feet of clay, or by his father sabotaging so that he wouldn't be left alone. The series was more like watching a real dysfunctional family than looking at a TV show, and was a huge hit, getting up to 28 million viewers, which was more than half the top population of the UK at the time. It ran from 1962 to 1965 in black and white, and then 1970 to 1974 in colour, plus two feature films and a radio version which remade all the TV apps, plus various uh, spin-off um, specials and so forth. Bravo was clearly cast in Hard Day's Night on the strength of this, as apart from audience recognition, the character of the grandfather is very similar to Albert. 
the constant references to the grandfather being a clean old man come from Harold's constant admonishing him in the, in the Steptoe and Son series as a dirty old man for dubious personal habits like eating pickled onions in the bath. If you don't think that's so bad, chase up the scene on YouTube under the title An Act of Extreme Dirtiness. In real life, uh, Bramble was far removed from the characters he portrayed. His normal voice was a sweet pronunciation posh accent and he fancied himself as a dapper theatrical. Steptoe was also adapted officially and unofficially in several countries, most notably as Sanford and Son in the US. A stage version toured Australia after the series finished, and this was depicted in 2002 doco when Steptoe met Son, where the series stars were shown as being resentful at typecasting and also at each other's throats. A 2008 TV play, The Curse of Steptoe, covered similar ground, but both were regarded by Goldman Simpson and the actors' families as greatly inaccurate. In fact, Bramble continued to appear in other movie and theatre roles during and after Septo's run and received critical acclaim in some. He died in 1985 at living his comedy partner Corbett by three years and was cremated in a small private ceremony. Unlike so many BBC series of the period, all the episodes of Steptoe's Survivor remain as a lasting legacy to Wilfred Bramble and Harry H. Corbett. This episode is brought to you by The Sci-Fi Zone, a Facebook page for science fiction, films, TV shows, and collectibles. Okay, The Sci-Fi Zone isn't really sponsoring the show, but they are friends of Russell's, and they've got a pretty cool Facebook page, so I thought I'd give them a shout-out. Besides, I've never had a sponsor before, so this might make me seem like one of those big podcasts. Anyway, visit their Facebook page. It's Sci-Fi Zone, S-C-I-F-I space Zone. I'll have a link to their page in the show notes for today's episode. Thanks, Russell. I really didn't know anything about Brombell. It's a lot of good information there. So my favorite scene, excluding all the musical numbers, which are all fantastic, was when John meets Anna Quayle as Millie backstage. Hello. Hello. Oh, wait a minute. Don't no, I'm not. Oh, you are. I'm not. Oh, you are. I know you are. I'm not, no. You look just like him. Do I? You're the first one that said that ever. Yes, you do. Look. No, my eyes are lighter. Okay. All right, Noddy. Oh, Who knows? Yes. yes, your nose is very. Is it? Well, I would have said so. Oh, you know him better, though. I do not. He's only a casual acquaintance. That's what you say. What have you heard? all over the place. Is it? It's crazy. Mm, but I wouldn't have it. I stuck up for you. I knew I could rely on you. Thanks. You don't look like him at all. She looks more like him than I do. I've seen this scene many times and it always makes me laugh. And then there's the scene where George meets Simon Marshall, who plays some sort of trend-mongering advertising executive, and his secretary, Molly, played by Alison Shibom. Only Susan Campy, our resident teenager. You'll have to love her. She's your symbol. Oh, you mean that posh bird who gets everything wrong? I beg your pardon. 
Oh, yeah, the lads frequently sit round the television and watch her for a giggle. In fact, once we all sat down and wrote these letters saying how gear she was and all that rubbish. She's a trendsetter. It's her profession. She's a drag, a well-known drag. We turn the sound down on her and say rude things. Get him out of here. Have I said something you missed? Get him out. He's knocking the programme's image. Sorry about the shirt. Get him out! And Allison, if I pronounced your name wrong, I apologize. And I love the fact that Shake is reading a Mad Magazine book. Now, part of the plot, something that I really enjoy, is that for about the first third of the film, the Beatles are always shown in sort of claustrophobic locations. I mean, when they're in the train, they are literally shown in a cage. And I wonder if that was a comment about the life they were living at the time. And so far, I've been in a train and a room, and a car and a room, and a room and a room. But finally, about a third of the way through, they break free, running through a fire escape, and Ringo yells, We're out! And they all go running around like lunatics as Can't Buy Me Love plays. It's a scene very reminiscent of Lester's running, jumping, standing still short. A few other notable actors in the film are Victor Spinetti as the TV director. Spinetti was a friend of John's, and he was in their next film, Help, as the Mad Scientist, and was also in Magical Mystery Tour as the Army Sergeant. Petty Boyd plays Jean, a blonde schoolgirl on the train. George Harrison would end up falling in love with her, and the two were married two years later. Of course, she would eventually dump George for Eric Clapton. Charlie, the young boy Ringo encounters by the river, was played by David Jansen. Not the David Jansen who played in The Fugitive, but a different David Jansen. David was a child stage actor who was in a stage production of Oliver in 62 and a Midsummer Night's Dream in 63 as part of the Royal Shakespeare Company. He went on to do a lot of TV work in the UK and is still alive as of this recording at the age of 72. A couple of people you might not know are in this film, as they are uncredited, are Charlotte Rampling, who is a nightclub dancer, and drummer Phil Collins, who was a child in the audience during the final TV performance in the film. There's a lot to enjoy in this film, especially if you like the Beatles' music. Now, I grew up with this film and have always loved it, though I should mention that I was only three when this film hit theaters, so it was slightly before my time, but still... Tell me, uh, how did you find America? Turn left to Greenland. Has success changed your life? Yes. I'd like to keep Britain tidy. Are you a mod or a rocker? Um, no, I'm a mocker. Okay, I love this film, but of course, we have to find out what others think of the film. On Rotten Tomatoes, it gets a 98% audience score, which is very respectable. Matt R. gave it 5 out of 5 stars, and he wrote... Crazy, hilarious fun infused with quirky acting and some absolutely fantastic music. Yes, Matt, I concur. Greg S. gave it 5 out of 5 stars and he wrote, Fantastic faux documentary style story of a day in the life of the biggest band ever, The Beatles. All four can act, with George and Ringo being very natural. The cinematography in black and white is beautiful. Groundbreaking directors like Martin Scorsese and Ron Howard have spoken of its influence. And of course, the music is superb. Classic. Again, I agree, Greg, and I'll talk about the acting in just a moment. Still, there are some people who just don't get it. 
James O. gave it two and a half stars, and he wrote, I just really don't know what this is all about. No idea what the point was. Assume they were just cashing in on their game. My favorite one of the Beatles was The Old Man, and Ringo was the only one with any personality. As an opportunity to show how wooden and anodyne looking the Beatles were, it does a fine job. I don't understand why girls went crazy for them. They're utterly unremarkable. Their music is good, the soundtrack is alright, but you know, just buy the albums and don't waste your time. Hey James, at least you like the music, I mean that's something. Though I really don't agree with much of the rest. Danny M gave it only two stars and he wrote, overrated the band and the film. And that's just how James wrote it. Well James, it is impossible to be overrated. Whenever a large amount of people like something or someone, there's always some sort who, probably out of jealousy, calls it overrated. Again, it goes back to that old, I know better and you people are all just sheep silliness. Now, as far as the Beatles being actors, I'd say that George is the most natural. I don't know, I thought it just sounded distinguished like George Harrison, the scars of distinction. Richard Lester said of George, I think George was the most effective actor all the way through in that he attempted less, but he always hit it right in the center, and I always knew what I was going to get with George. Paul, well, he tries a bit too hard. Excuse me, but these young men I'm sitting with wondered if two of us could come over and join you. I'd ask you myself only I'm shy. Richard Lester said, I think the problem with Paul is that he's so enthusiastic towards cinema, film, art, and the zeitgeist, what's going on, that sometimes that got in the way. Sometimes I think Paul tried harder than he should have. And then there's Ringo, the one who would really try to make it as an actor in the 70s. I love Ringo, but there's a couple moments of really bad acting, like this little nugget. He can talk then, can he? Of course he can talk, he's a human being, isn't he? Well, if he's your grandfather, who knows? <laughs> I always thought that could have used another take. Of course, Ringo got praised for his canal scene, in which he's walking by himself, all sad and lonely, and meets a young boy. He seems to really sell it and is totally convincing, but the truth is, according to Ringo himself in the Beatles anthology, he had been out all night drinking and he showed up hungover. As he said, there's no acting going on there. The wit and rebellious nature of John comes through, and he seems a pretty competent actor, but not great. Are you listening to me, Lennon? You're a swan, any George. What are you messing around with that boat for? There's a car waiting, come on. In an interview later in his life, Richard Lester said of John, John was not known to suffer fools, and I probably fell in the fool category. He was always willing to skewer pomposity around him, and I think there can't be any more pompous person on the set but in a director. So I have wounds, but I have a huge, huge admiration for John. I think I can take all his criticisms as they were meant in the best possible taste. I thought I'd finish this up by reading a bit from a blog called Slazy at the Movies by Danielle Slazman. This is after the 4K Blu-ray was released. A Hard Day's Night was a game changer in so many ways. The use of music in movies has never been the same. This is something that cannot be stressed enough. It is an artistic decision to shoot the film in black and white. 
I have to say that I agree with the late film critic Roger Ebert about the film being in black and white. A Hard Day's Night in color just wouldn't be the same. By filming in black and white, this film remains timeless. Help is in color, but it's a very different film. Almost 60 years after it was first released, A Hard Day's Night is still one of the best musical films of all time, and it's never looked better than in 4K Ultra HD. Though I have to say, Danielle, that the decision to shoot in black and white was more of a budgetary thing than an artistic thing, but I agree that it just wouldn't work in color. Would you rather not come with me, Mrs. Mandor? It's natural to be disquieted. Even for an unbeliever? People who call themselves unbelievers always, always remind me of Madame Pompadour's famous remark. I don't believe in ghosts, but I'm afraid of them. There was no ghost of the mission of Sierra Cobra. My own child once was splashed by the black blood of it. A little bit before I go. The opening chord of the song A Hard Day's Night was very unusual. I assume it was part of their constant effort to do something different. To get that sound, George plays an F add 9 on his 12-string Rickenbacker, Paul plays a D on his bass, John plays a D suspended on his guitar, and on top of that, George Martin plays a D7 suspended on the piano. That's how they get that unusual sound. Now, although I'm a guitar player, I'm not smart enough to know that myself. I got that from Mike Pacelli, who has a wonderful YouTube channel in which he goes into detail about Beatles songs, you know, what instruments the Beatles used, how they played them, and also a bit of history about the song. It's very good stuff. If you're interested in the Beatles music, it's a great channel to, to watch. So next week I'm going to talk about a film I've never seen before. It was recommended by Russell, and it's called Ghost of Sierra de Cobre from 1964, starring Martin Landau and Judith Anderson. It's a made-for-TV horror thriller film, according to Wikipedia. I hope you'll join us. Now listen up. We have a Facebook page, and I would love to read your comments. It's called Celluloid Days. I also have a Twitter account. It's at celluloid underscore days. We're up to 34 followers. Wow. And I'm always looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. The email address for the show is daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Daysofcelluloid, all being one word. You can email me for any reason, even if it's just to say hi. And if you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. I want to thank Russell for his contribution to today's show and to all of you for listening. I appreciate it so much. Take care, and I'll be back next Monday. Be healthy. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. Multipass. Leah, uh, multipass, you know this multipass. Your stupid minds, stupid, stupid. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I